0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, change is challenging, uncomfortable, and frankly, most of us just don't like it. But author Brad Stolberg says there are techniques to working with a world that is always evolving.
1: Whenever we go through a change, two common paths prevail. One is very reactionary, which is we feel an emotion and then we do. And the other is much more responsive. We're deliberate, we're slower, we're more thoughtful. We very rarely regret responding. We often regret reacting rashly.
0: And later, why a flexible sense of self is crucial to our mental health and maybe even our success.
1: There is no data that shows that tying your identity to one pursuit leads to better results in that pursuit. If anything, there's some data that states the opposite. There's fascinating data on entrepreneurs that shows that those that keep their day job, they end up having more success than those that quit their day job and go all in.
0: Mastering change and how being open to it can lead to a stronger and healthier you that's coming up on life examined, change is constant over the course of our lifetimes. Things will always be in flux. we age, we switch jobs, we develop new skills and characteristics. Some of us marry or move great distances. Change is often subtle, slow, unnoticed, and other times it's glaringly obvious, like the weather. Though some change is often wonderful, it's often met with resistance and even panic. In fact, the nature of change and our love of stability has long been the subject of both Eastern and Western philosophical thought. So why do we seek and fear change? And how do we learn to be more open to the flow of life, embracing the unknown? And is it possible to change without abandoning too much of ourselves? In his latest book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You?, Author Brad Stolberg explains the science behind change and the importance of balance, which Stolberg describes as the ability to be both rugged while at the same time flexible. Brad Stolberg researches, writes, and teaches about mental health and well-being. His books include Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Practice of Groundedness. Brad Stolberg, it's great to have you back on Life Examines. Welcome. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm fascinated by this concept of change, because it seems to be the one thing that we resist at all costs in every part of our life. And my sense is that the literature on this goes back a long, long ways in a lot of different directions. I mean, I think of early Greek schools, um, almost pre-Socratic ideas. Uh, I've always been very influenced by the idea of Buddhism, which takes the concept of change very seriously, but like, wh- where did you start to find these different tendrils of ideas around change and, wh- and what really jumped out to you?
1: So I started with the science, or at least the Western science. Mm. And there, it dates back to the mid-1800s when the physiologist and physician Walter Cannon coined this term homeostasis, which many people are familiar with. And homeostasis describes healthy living systems as stable and inherently resistant to change. And the goal of any system under a homeostatic model is to resist change. And when change happens, to try to get back to a sense of stability as fast as possible. Hmm. And that was the underlying scientific model for change for the last 150 years. Only more recently, and by more recently, I mean in the last couple of decades, has the scientific community introduced a competing model for change called allostasis. In allostasis agrees with homeostasis that living systems like stability, where it fundamentally differs and is more accurate is that it states that following change, yes, healthy systems return to stability, but that stability is somewhere new. Mm. So whereas homeostasis says that change is something that happens to us and the goal is to get back to normal, allostasis says that change is something that we're always in conversation with, that we participate in, and the goal is to help shape a new normal. Hmm.
0: How did you make sense of these two different paradigms and this shift from this idea that, you know, we're looking for homeostasis when the reality is that, no, things are more dynamic than that. Time is passing. We are changing. We are aging. The world is changing. Like, how how did that sit with you?
1: You know, I'm a person that really likes stability. So, Mm. um, you know, I also am fascinated by the, um, the ancient wisdom traditions which also have done so much work on change predating the science and, and are much more accurate in their view of change. So impermanence is such a part of both Eastern and Western philosophical wisdom traditions. But that was always the hardest part for me to grasp uh, because I do like stability. But I actually found this, this revelation, at least personally, of allestasis to be really empowering because it doesn't say that we need to completely release from stability. Rather, it it says, and the literal etymology of the word is stability through change. Hmm. So it asks us to be stable by changing, at least to some extent. And it says that the way to be stable is to accept into change. Hmm.
0: There's some interesting examples of allostasis in the book. I mean, just the way that a healthy forest functions, right? I mean, could, could you talk about that, the way that nature does work with these principles?
1: Yeah, nature is constantly reordering itself whenever there's an external change. And you think about evolution, which is change on the grandest, most you know majestic scale. And it's really just a constant repeating of the cycle of order and stability. Then there's disorder. There's some kind of environmental shock or punctuated change. Or sometimes the change is slow. It's just aging. A species ages over time. There's random variation, there's disorder injected, and then we reach stability somewhere new. We Mm -hmm. achieve reorder. A forest goes through seasons, right? The same thing happens, but a forest is never the same forest twice. It's constantly reordering itself. Mm -hmm. Even us as individuals, you think about a response to illness. By definition, we start somewhat stable. We have instability, our immune system activates. It fights the illness, there's a period of disorder. And then we return to stability, but that stability is somewhere new. That is literally the process of gaining immunity. Mm-hmm.
0: You also mentioned the, the wisdom traditions. Um, I, I'd love for you to say a little bit more about the ones that really stuck out to you. I mean, I know you have some amazing references in here to, to Hindu philosophy, Buddhist philosophy. Um, pick any of those that you found really compelling.
1: What I actually find most compelling is that both East and West, and presumably independently, the big wisdom traditions arrived at the same conclusions. So in the East, Buddhism, the fundamental law of Buddhism is impermanence. There's a teacher, a meditation teacher named Judson Brewer. I think you might have had him on your podcast Yes, yeah, Absolutely. Past. Yep. Yeah, I, I love Judson. And Judson once said that you can summarize all of Buddhism in two words, which is everything changes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it is at the core of Buddhism. And then Taoism is all about the way of the universe and trying to be in harmony with the universe. It's not, hey, you should be a strong, independent self and exert your will. It's no, the universe is always changing and you're a part of that. So East, these wisdom traditions are originating, but then you look to the West and there's the Greek philosopher Heraclitus that famously said, you can't step into the same river twice. I am and I am not. Talk about just a poetic way to describe change and to describe this paradox of, on the one hand, we are a self. You know, Jonathan, I'm talking to you. I'm stable here. You're stable. But we're also always changing. Mm -hmm. And then even the Stoics, who are known as more controlling, right, in in a more kind of Western agency-driven philosophy, well, they also have the dichotomy of control, which says that all sorts of external change is going to happen. And we should accept that and then we should focus on what we can control and release from what we can't which also echoes the serenity prayer which is very famous in christianity which came later which is i'm paraphrasing but god grant me the wisdom to accept what i can't control and then to focus on changing what i can so all of the wisdom traditions whether east west they all converge around this notion that like change is the reality and there's this enormous paradox Which is, on the one hand, we are stable. We are here. We are having this conversation. But on the other hand, we're also always changing. Right. It's
0: interesting, though, to me, that a lot of these scientific and wisdom traditions point to something that (laughs) I don't know how much we really want to accept or actually run counter to our psychology as humans. I mean, you write a lot about the fact that the brain is in essence like a predicting machine. Like we are looking for predictions. We're looking for sameness. We're looking for understanding and logic everywhere around us. And that that's a core aspect of who we are as humans and how we see things and how we function. But at the same time, we're talking about this other really important principle that you're bringing about and writing about, right? Like, How do we reconcile these two parts of ourselves?
1: I think that um, we have to be both rugged and flexible. So it's not either or, right? To be rugged is to be strong, to be robust, to be enduring. And to be flexible is to be smooth, to bend easily without breaking, to be soft. And I think that people far too often think of these as opposites when in fact they're complements. So the best way to skillfully navigate change is to be both rugged and flexible to know your core attributes, to know the parts of you that crave stability, but to realize that the only way to achieve that stability is by changing, is by flexibly applying those core parts of yourself. Back to evolution, the greatest change, the greatest teacher on change, when you look at species that thrive for long periods of time, they without fail have this combination of two things. On the one hand, they have these central features that make them what they are. And if those features were to change, the species would be unrecognizable. So they hold on to those central features. But then on everything else, they adapt and evolve. And even how they apply those central features, how those central features manifest, that is also flexible. So species that have the longest runs, they have this combination of ruggedness of central features, but also a flexibility and adaptation. And I think that While that's on a very grand scale, you can look at our own lives and you can look at our sense of identities and ourselves and start to have a very similar heuristic, which is, hey, if I want to be strong and endure and survive these cycles of disorder and reorder and go through change, I both need to be really rugged and strong, but I also need to marry that with pretty intense flexibility.
0: Mm. This reminds me of a conversation that, that really stuck with me. It's with a psychologist, George Bonanno, who writes a lot about trauma at Columbia University. And we were talking about like, you know, who are the folks that that will show symptoms of PTSD long term, right? So somebody who's been through extreme trauma and then have a hard time kind of breaking out of that or they're kind of stuck in the trauma and the new research around it that he's proposing is that he actually uses the word flexibility, almost emotional or intellectual flexibility. It's those that are able to kind of recognize the trauma, but also be creative and problem solving through it. And I think what you and I are probably both recognizing in different ways is that those that I think get most stuck literally are those that Cannot be flexible out of situations, right? They kind of are lodged in a place in their life in which they refuse to move from. So I think, you know, I'm seeing this term show up from a lot of different angles, which I find pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. You know, you could almost describe um, PTSD as like a stasis Mm. or a stuckness or rigidity. And I'm very careful here because I don't think that it results out of anyone's will. If it did, no one would ever suffer from PTSD. Of course, yeah. I think that there are environmental factors and then there's just genetic inheritance and neurochemistry, but not normative, not judging. Purely from a descriptive standpoint, PTSD is is in many ways, by definition, kind of being stuck in the past. Exactly. Being yeah. stuck in the sensations of the past, um, the brain kind of rigidifying around that, whereas... Post-traumatic growth is characterized by moving forward and by integrating that. Now, what's really fascinating in research that I did for this book, and it's not primary research, it was done in upstate New York. A researcher named Mark Siri and his colleagues, they looked at individuals that underwent capital T trauma and those that had a PTSD trajectory versus a PTG, post-traumatic growth trajectory. And what they found is that over the first three months, these two groups looked about the exact same. So their psychological assessments were about the same, their physiological assessments were the same. They were all kind of going downhill. They were all on a trajectory that looked bad. But it wasn't until the three to six month mark in that window that those that experienced growth started to trend up. And I think this is really important because what it says is that for the massive negative changes in our life. We cannot force meaning or growth on those. It has to occur on its own time. So it's almost like, you know, the the psychologist Dan Gilbert talks about a psychological immune system. And the greater the insult, the greater the change, the more time we need to give our psychological immune system to marshal a response. Mm. So we can go through a period where we feel a little rigid, we feel a little stuck, but just holding on to this sense that, hey, if I can just get to the other side of this, my psychological immune system will make sense of this, will create some meaning, and hopefully I'll be able to move forward.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of other, I think, really important work on this. I think of, of June Gruber, at University of Colorado Boulder, or a lot of other places that I think are really questioning a modality that we're kind of making our way out of, which we might call something like toxic positivity or just leaning into what we think of our positive emotions or just um, kind of static one-toned way of being. And that I think what a lot of these folks are saying, and you included, is that even if we just look at what emotional health is, it's not actually just being happy all the time, right? It's being able to be in the darker keys and the minor keys. It's being able to actually hold all of these pieces together, kind of almost like biodiversity in a sense internally. And I think to me, that also says a lot about this idea of flexibility. It's a psychological flexibility. Does, Does that make sense?
1: it makes a ton of sense. And I want to take it back to expectations. So all sorts of research points towards this fundamental equation for human um, flourishing, human well-being, human happiness,
0: Mm.
1: which is that it's a function of our reality minus our expectations. So if we always expect that things are going to be positive and rosy, well, guess what? Our reality will inevitably go through downtimes. And if our expectation is that we should be happy all the time, we're going to feel like crap. Whereas if we have a more accurate expectation, which is just what you said, a textured, full, meaningful life is full of ups and downs. Sadness, despair, these are normal emotions. These aren't things to run away from. These aren't signs of brokenness. These are signs of being a human. These are signs of our humanity. Doesn't mean we need to like feeling those things. But if we can expect that at times we will feel those things the edge really starts to melt away because it's often not so much sadness or anxiety or despair that is the problem. The problem is that when we judge ourselves for having those emotions, when we say we shouldn't be feeling sad or we shouldn't be feeling anxious or we shouldn't be feeling despairing, and then those emotions even become more sticky. Hmm. So yeah, I think that such a part of this is recognizing that change happens. We need to expect that change is going to happen. Crappy emotions will surface. We need to expect that those are going to surface. Yeah, And then have the resources and the skills and the tools to try to chart our way through and to live a meaningful full life, even in spite of those, and perhaps because of those things.
0: Yeah. And that equation you have for happiness is one to me that I feel becomes more true the, the older I get. And I think a, a really like mundane example of that is, you know, when I was younger and I used to travel, I, I would have, like, these incredible dreams of exactly what I would find when I would leave the country and the people I would meet or what would happen or the relationships that would unfold. And, right, like, inevitably, a lot of that stuff didn't happen. I'd be kind of bummed out. And I, I've been trying to do this exercise where when I go somewhere new, I, I've been trying to say, like, okay, don't don't even dream too deeply into this. Just, just let it be what it's going to be. And I find that that's actually really hard to do, right? We're like we're naturally projecting creatures. We like to think of what things are going to be and taste like and feel like and how that will correspond with reality. But it's like it's, it's hard not to do that, right? It's so programmed into us.
1: That is right. I think a profound example that I lived through and so many of us lived through was somewhat early on in the pandemic. There was a summer when cases essentially went down to zero. And I distinctly remember my then three-year-old child, didn't have a living memory of walking into someone else's house, right? Because mm. his core memories back then, I guess they're not core memories, but his early memories were all through COVID and going to a friend's house and just having the biggest smile and saying, daddy, daddy, I'm, I'm in someone else's house. We basically like started to think that the pandemic was over. I know I did. It was like mm. this glorious summer. I don't know if you remember it. And then the Delta variant came right. and it was like a gut punch, In everybody, the mood was so despairing, Mm. even though objectively, when the Delta variant hit, we were in a much better spot. We understood transmission. We had vaccines. We had therapeutics. Yet the mood was almost worse than at the start of the pandemic. And I think that's because our expectations were, hey, like we finally got through this thing. It's over. And then when reality shifted, we didn't update our expectations. And as a result, we suffered. How do you
0: then kind of balance those two? Do you think it goes back to this idea of a kind of the rugged flexibility model, like that we both want to dream and we want to accept reality at the same time? Where do those overlap?
1: I think that's 100% it. I think that it's okay. It's good to dream, to have high expectations, so long as we expect that they're not always going to be met and that we update to match reality as swiftly as possible. Mm. So this isn't about like going through life with low expectations, though I think it is about an expectancy that like we're going to go through hard times and we're going to feel all the feelings and things are going to change. I think that's important, but I think more important is just trying to align our expectations to reality. Mm -hmm. So when things shift, when things don't go our way, stop and say, my brain thought it was gonna be X, but it's actually Y and I need to update for Y. And we're talking about this on more grand scales But this happens in the trivial all the time, Mm -hmm. right? You get stuck in traffic, your dog has diarrhea and you're going to be late for a meeting, your kid melts down on the way to school, Um, your meeting at work didn't go as planned. I mean, all of these are like minor insults to our expectations. And even for the most trivial day-to-day changes, the more time that it takes us to update to reality, the worse we feel and the worse we do. Mm -hmm. People that can really navigate these gracefully, they simply say, all right, I'm in traffic the dog had diarrhea, the dog barfed, so-and-so interrupted in me in the meaning. Like, This is what's happening right now. What am I going to do as a result?
0: Yeah. It just reminds me of one more. You and I could just ping psychological stuff back and forth at each other, but, but there's a famous type of therapy, DBT, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, and there's this really wonderful phrase that comes up, which is radical acceptance, right? And, I, and I've always just loved that term because For those that can work with it and can sometimes just truly radically accept how things are changing and how you have changed or we have changed, like that to me is a term that is filled with such wisdom, a lot of which what you're saying here, I
1: think. That's right. And I think that the reason that it's so hard comes back to this like misnomer of homeostasis. Yeah. You know, we all grew up in um, an environment where change was seen as a threat. And where the goal was to get back to normal or to not change at all, to be stable, yeah. um, I distinctly remember an old family member you know as a point of pride saying, "I haven't changed in forty years <laughs> right. and, and and that 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 was a point of pride under the homeostatic model, but it's just not accurate it's not how life works. it's kind of like we're all engaging in magical thinking, and um again, like I think we suffer a lot as a result,
0: yeah. I'd love for you now to tell the story. And this one really kind of caught me off guard, but stuck with me. I went back to read it a few times. Um, It's of a speed skater called Niels Vanderpool. And he wrote this kind of profound little manifesto, I believe after an Olympic win or training, but it also really caught your attention. I I wonder if you could explain what it is and and what what he was really writing about.
1: So Niels Vanderpool in the 2022 Winter Games won a gold medal in both the 10K and the 5K and set a world record. So he's Mm -hmm. the best speed skater in the world. And shortly following the double medal, he released this document, which was called how to skate a 10K and also a 5K. And the endurance sports community freaked out because Mm -hmm. everyone thought it was going to be like this huge training plan. And while it definitely contained a lot about his training, it was also this philosophical look into his mind. And I thought the most fascinating part of this entire document was his insights on identity as a speed skater. Hmm. So prior to the 2022 games, he felt that he was underperforming in really big competitions. And he did a lot of reflection and identified the reason behind that was fear. And the reason behind that fear was his entire identity was as a speed skater. He felt like if he wasn't Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater, then who was he? He didn't have any other identity outside of the sport. And a lot of this was by no fault of his own. To compete at the world level, you have to start at such a young age, and you have to dedicate basically all of your time and energy to that pursuit. Mm. But Vanderpool pulled back and said, you know, this is a recipe for disaster. Because eventually, I'm going to have to retire. So like, there is the change that is coming for me and everyone which is aging. And if I don't start to cultivate parts of myself outside of the sport, I'm going to be so fragile to change. So Vanderpol did something that was unthinkable at the time for an Olympic speed skater, which is he took a full two days off every week and he lived like a normal person. He went out for beers and pizza with his friends. He went bowling. He went hiking. He started to read books. You got to remember, right? This is a world-class athlete. An Olympian doing this is insane at the time. Like Every waking hour is training or recovery. And he said, no, I'm just going to have normal weekends. You know, my friends that are accountants, they have weekends. Why can't I have a weekend? And he started to develop a sense of identity outside of speed skating. He became more intellectual. He developed an identity as a neighbor, as a community member, as a friend. He liked food. He's a foodie now. So he had all of these identities outside of just the sport. And he started to perform so much better Mm. because he was no longer scared. In this manifesto, he writes that what I shed was fear. And I just love that because I think that while it's obviously extreme for someone that's the best in the world at what they do, so much of the reason that we as individuals are fragile to change is because we don't diversify our identities enough, right? This is the person that retires and then falls into depression because work was the sole source of meaning in their life. This is the parent that becomes an empty nester and doesn't know what to do themselves or the marriage that falls apart when the kid goes to college. Mm. This is the armchair athlete who uses sport as medication for their own psychological issues and then gets injured and doesn't know what to do. And I think that by diversifying our sense of selves, we become so much more robust to change because when change occurs in one area of our life, we can lean on those others for stability. So I like to think of it as identity is kind of like having a house and you want to have a house with multiple rooms. So in my own life, there's the writer room, there's the parent room, there's the partner room. There's the athlete room, there's the gardener room, and I don't have to spend equal time in all these rooms. There are seasons when I spend a lot of time in the writer room or a lot of time in the parent room, but I never want to close the doors to the other rooms completely. Mm. Because when crap hits the fan in one area of my life, when things change in one area of my life, it's those other areas that really give me a sense of ruggedness and stability.
0: You know, it's interesting when I read that, and, and you just did such a beautiful job explaining it, it. It it makes me think about the way that our culture is set up to really only praise. The those that pursue the single thing with all of their might over and over and over and almost have no life like look at every documentary that's out there on HBO or Netflix and it's about like, you know, the crazy genius who went after that one record or wanted to fix the one thing or kind of, you know, like the Steve Jobs archetype. And they all seem to me to focus on the complete opposite of balance. It's just obsession, obsession over single things. And it becomes this kind of hero myth that we tell over and over and over again. And so to me, the story of Neil's like really hits home as as a really healthy way to be. But I think it's important to say that like the culture we live in, in the stream we're in is sending us in a very, very different direction.
1: Yeah, I have two things to say about this. And it's such an astute observation that you make. The first is that I wouldn't necessarily call Niels balanced. Like you don't become Mm. a world-class athlete by being balanced. So in those five days that he trained, he trained eight hours a day. So he's still training 40 hours a week, right? So it wasn't like he was um, proportionally allocating his time and energy. It was simply like crafting psychic identities beyond this sport and giving them just enough time and energy where he wasn't lying to himself about it. So I do think to be great, you kind of have to go all in. Yeah. But you can't go all the way in, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And I I think that that's the first important point to make. And then the second important point is I couldn't agree more. There's all of this selection bias for the hero myth. Steve Jobs, Mark Cavendish, Michael Jordan, um, you name it. But it's that same set of temperament and traits that gives us Elizabeth Holmes and Lance Armstrong. And I also think that there are people like Niels Vanderpool that don't get the documentary. Another example for sports fan is Tim Duncan. How come Tim Duncan didn't get the last dance documentary five-time champion, greatest power forward to ever play the game, but he was super quiet, right? He, he wasn't like this angry chip on his shoulder, obsessional athlete. So I think that we're drawn to these crazy hero myths, but they don't always pan out. And there are alternative paths to greatness. And, um, I think it's just important that when we talk about greatness, we say, yeah, there's multiple roads to Rome. And I couldn't agree with you more. We tend to only get this obsessional road. And we don't get the more flexible road.
0: Mm. It's funny. I was thinking about this so much recently in my own life. You know, you and I have talked about. I, I love to compete in long endurance sports, and I just finished this this big race called the Leadville One Hundred. It's a famous. Mountain oh, congratulations! Bike race. Yeah, thank you. And it, you know, it just a crazy That's amount. That's a doozy. Yeah, it, yeah,
1: that is a doozy. It, <laughs>
0: it was a big one hundred miles, ten thousand feet of elevation gain, and you're already up at twelve thousand feet. And I, I remember, and having done these before, I remember I finished it. And there's this incredible high that you get and everybody's kind of like, you know, my phone is blowing up. Everybody's so excited. They're patting you on your back. But it's so interesting that I know this now about 48 hours later, you're going to actually kind of fall off a cliff emotionally and physically and psychologically. And all of the excitement and the noise and all the training and all the thing you've been working for so much, you're going to enter this like this room of silence And I had this distinct feeling as I was driving back from the race, kind of starting to feel a little bit of like these little pangs of grief kind of come in knowing it was on the way. They call it kind of a post-race blues. I literally, and this is just before I read your book, I thought, oh my God, thank God I have a full life to return to right now. And if I didn't, I don't know what I would do, you know, like I I had this interview to look forward to. I had music with my friends and and trust me, I'm not some paragon of like mental health here, but it it was an interesting thing to kind of recognize when you go through enough of these cycles to say that I cannot just rely on this one thing for my sole source of happiness. And um, it seems to just kind of correlate a lot with what you're saying.
1: 100%. What you just described is, and again, a hearty congratulations, because that is a doozy of a race. It's the same thing as publishing a book. Mm. It's the same thing as finishing your surgical fellowship and becoming an attending physician. Um, In many ways, it's the same thing as getting married. Like you go through the honeymoon phase. I mean, are there unique differences to all of these? Of course, but it's the same predominant theme, which is when we over index on any one thing for meaning and that one thing changes, we can face massive disorientation. So the more that we can have multiple sources of meaning in our life, the more resilient, the more rugged we are to change. Mm. Um, In my own life, right? This book is going to come out and I'm going to go through the exact same high as you. And there are parts of me that say, I just should go all in. You know, instead of going to the gym, I should focus more on book publicity. Or I know other authors that don't spend as much time with their kids and I'm sure my wife would support me. So I should just travel more talking about the book. And there's this real urge to do it. But I know that if I do that a month from now, two months from now, I'm going to be more empty. So if anything, it's like I have to bring deliberate effort to diversifying my sense of self and my sources of meaning, especially during these times of um, intense effort in one domain, so that when you have the come down, there are other places to support you to catch you.
0: Yeah. And I think this is even, you mentioned this in the Niels Vanderpool section that, I mean, there just have been psychological studies that have looked at what happens to these great athletes or artists when they come home. I mean, Michael Phelps did an interesting documentary on this that like... Just once again, tying one's identity to one thing can lead to some really, really dangerous outcomes.
1: That's right. And it's not correlated with better performance. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. So like the documentaries, there's selection bias for a crazy story because we want to tune into a crazy story, a heroic story, like you said. But in addition to suffering worse mental health outcomes, there is no data that shows that tying your identity to one pursuit leads to better results in that pursuit. If anything, there's some data that states the opposite Mm. because you become so fragile. There's fascinating data on entrepreneurs that shows that those that keep their day job, they end up having more success than those that quit their day job and go all in. Mm. Because when you go all in, you become so fragile.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Brad Stolberg, and we'll be back with part two of the conversation after this short break. This is Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour, Brad Stolberg, researches, writes, and teaches about mental health and well-being. We're discussing his latest book called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. In the first half of the conversation, Stolberg expanded on the historical roots of change, from ancient philosophers to some of the ancient wisdom traditions of Buddhism and Christianity. So what's the secret to successfully navigating change? Does it have a timetable, and does it impact our sense of self? Let's jump back in. So let's talk a little bit about how we put some of these ideas into action. And, and I'll let you guide it here. But I mean, you, you talk about some really interesting ways of, of approaching this day-to-day life. For example, rugged and flexible boundaries and other techniques. But I'll, I'll let you kind of take it where you think is the, the first place we launch off in terms of the, the integration of this stuff.
1: I think the first place to start is by knowing your core values your essential being qualities, the things that you really aspire to that make you who you are, defining those in concrete terms. And this is almost like your guide during periods of change because your values you can take with you. You apply them flexibly, but when you know them, they can't be taken away from you. So the metaphor that I use in the book is of a river. So if you think of your identity or your sense of self like a river, There is this fluid, this flow, this diversification, right? That can go around obstacles and through obstacles, you know, from Heraclitus, the ancient Greece to Bruce Lee, be like water. We spend a lot of time focusing on the flow, but no one talks about the bank of a river. And if a river doesn't have a bank, it's just random water. And I think that when we think about having a fluid or a flowing identity, we also need to define, well, what are the rugged boundaries? What's the bank? Mm. And there, I think it's our core values. Because our core values, these are the things that guide the path of our identity, that guide our becoming. So there's some research that comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy, which I know you're also very familiar with, Mm. that shows that even though it's hard, a forced prioritization of getting to three to five core values is really helpful because then you can really zero in on what matters most to you. Mm. And then when things around you change, you can say, hey, what would an authentic person do? What would someone who values community do? What would someone who values health or who values creativity do in this situation? How might I take my core values, which remain the same, but apply them differently? And then the question always comes up into my mind at least, which is, well, what if your core values change? And that's okay. But if you think about it, it's your current core values that guide you to your new ones.
0: Yes. And, and this to me, I think poses some really interesting questions, right? Which is that oftentimes it feels that the world, can be evolving or changing in ways that that really kind of don't, don't correlate or correspond with your core values or how you want to spend your time or who you think you are. Like um, we have AI kind of now on the cusp of becoming a big part of who we are. Or you and I work in media, right? And I love doing these long conversations because they're meaningful to me. They feed me. I think they, they're good for attention and focus. But I'm also being asked to do like short TikTok videos that I don't want to do, but people are saying either get on board with that kind of stuff or you're going to be left behind. And I wonder like how how you kind of work with the idea that the world moves in ways that we don't always like, but we either kind of have to jump on board with it or not, even depending on how we think of ourselves or what we want anyway. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I'm a pragmatist. So I think that in that situation I would say like, you know, the underlying core value for you is um maybe wisdom or intellect or meaningful conversations. I guess that's two words, but it could right. still be a value. And then I would just challenge you to say, all right, so if that's what I want to do given the world that I'm in, what behaviors do I need to take to enable me to do it? And if that is posting on TikTok, then the question becomes all right, do I like want to try to make this a meaningful, creative endeavor and do it in a way that feels authentic and meaningful to me? Mm. Or do I just want to say, nah, that's impossible. So I'm just going to go through the motions. I'm going to do the bare minimum so that I can maintain time and energy to focus on the long form conversations. Right. So it's never going to be perfect. Right. right? Um, There's a Bruce Springsteen quote in the book that I just love where he says that mature adulthood is essentially meeting the world on its terms without losing hope. Hmm. And I think that's what this is ultimately about. And I think the hope is that, hey, I can have these values and I can find creative ways to apply them. And yet I can't just like, you know, lock myself in the basement and pretend that the world around me doesn't exist. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, right. It's that idea of like, how how do you stay authentic when the world is always tra- changing? Because that, that's just always going to be the case.
1: That's right. And I think here on the internet, especially there's this juxtaposition um, that really like bothers me in a way. And I didn't know why. And then I explored it for the book. So, and I'm painting in very broad strokes, but you have these two camps. And one camp is what you referred to earlier, I think is toxic positivity, Mm -hmm. which is I'm going to bury my head in the sand. I'm just going to, you know, my life is good. So what does it matter if the world is changing? I'm going to go to my organic grocery store. I'm going to go to my golf club and I'm just going to live my good life and not pay attention to anything that I don't like. On the other extreme, there is like despair or nihilism which says, things are so broken. Things are changing so fast in such the wrong way. There's climate change. There's geopolitical change. and I don't like any of it, and I'm mm-hmm. helpless, so why would I even try? Because what one individual action could make it different? And I think what these two things have in common is that they're kind of lazy cop-outs
0: <laughs>
1: because they absolve you of the need to do anything. If you bury your head in the sand and pretend that everything's fine, well, then why would you need to take any action to make anything better? Why would you need to improve anything? Mm-hmm. If you buy into despair, then why on earth would you take action if you don't think that any action matters? So it's a lot easier to go to Twitter and to post perfect pictures of your life or to sit there in despair than it is to say that, hey, like there is a lot about a world that is broken, but we can't become broken people if we're going to make it a better place. Yeah. And the same thing is true in our lives. You know, it's not good to wallow in despair and sit there with negative self-talk. If that becomes an entrenched pattern, that's a sign of depression, right? We don't want that. But on the flip side, it's also not good to be like, hey, I'm so great. I can't improve at anything. So we tend to do this with ourselves a little bit more. Like we can hold that tension. But when it comes to the world, I think people just fall into these two camps. And it's almost taken on a little bit of a political flavor. And again, I'm painting in really broad brushstrokes where the right tends to be like, everything's great. I want to go back to the old, let's just be positive. And the left can embrace sometimes a politics of nihilism. And I think both are just terrible paths forward.
0: There was a a really wonderful writer you even referenced earlier, Viktor Frankl, and he had this idea of tragic optimism, right? Those words seem to kind of fit in a little bit to what we're talking about here.
1: That's right. And and, and Frankl said just that, that life is full of tragedy. Um, It's inevitable, You know, tying these concepts together, like we better expect it because otherwise we are going to be thrown for a loop when it happens. And there's one tragedy that none of us can avoid, which is that the things that we love are going to change. Mm. And eventually the people that we love are going to die. And that is the ultimate tragedy of this human existence. And yet, in spite of it, we can still trudge forward with a hopeful attitude nonetheless, because this is the life that we have. These are the cards that were dealt. And It serves us no good to despair. And Frankel was really, really explicit about this. He said, I don't promote suffering for its own sake. A lot of people quote Frankel. A lot of bros say, you got to suffer to get stronger. Mm. He says, we should never voluntarily suffer. True suffering sucks. But what he says is that life will give you enough of it on its own where you don't have to voluntarily do any of it. Life will show you what real suffering is. And when that happens, our work as human beings is not to become completely broken, to maintain some optimism in the midst of that suffering, Mm -hmm. in the midst of that tragedy. Yeah.
0: And for some reason, I just can't help but, you know, think about how important a lot of these concepts are as we ourselves age like and we become more fragile and our bodies break down and we get sicker and that You know the world can feel like more of an obstacle as one ages but I feel like the these concepts of, of acceptance and working with and fluidity Almost become more and more important as we age like I it's really easy for me to talk about this as someone who just did a Leadville 100 and I still feel healthy and young and vital right But I I think there's this acknowledgement that it's not always gonna be this way and I need to be aware of that now now, right
1: yeah I mean aging is the the inevitable inescapable change for all of us so anybody yeah. that says like I can insulate myself from change well you know are, are, have you stopped aging and what's funny is that there's people that are actually trying to stop aging I, have, I don't think they're right. gonna have much luck um, but I think that's really just the fear of change and and these people tend to be kind of control freaks so it's not surprising that they want to stop aging um so yes I think that like bringing rugged flexibility to aging is such a great place to practice Um, what would it look like to define yourself? Not as someone that has the ability to do a level 100, but someone that loves athletics Mm -hmm. because you can still love athletics at age 80. If you make it that far, I hope you do. It just is going to look very different than at age 40. Right. Whereas if you define yourself as a performance athlete, well, that's tougher because generally we do experience some age related performance decline. And I'm not sitting here in a monastery saying, I've got this figured out and I'm the Zen master and I'm just going to let go. You know, It's still hard for me to reckon with this, but I think I can start to hold these things and grasp them a little bit more lightly because so ingrained in my psyche is this expectation that everything changes and that I don't have to sacrifice all agency. I don't have to say, therefore, my life is going to be chaos. I'm never going to have stability, but I can accept that that stability is going to have to be somewhere new, and I can create that stability somewhere new, but it, it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be back to where it was. Right.
0: And towards the end of the book, you, you're very important about uh, presenting one, one concept that you really believe in, and it's the difference between responding and reacting. So talk about kind of w- w- what it is you're getting at and why that's so important in the context of this conversation.
1: Whenever we go through a change, be it minor or major, um, two common paths prevail. One is very reactionary, which is we feel an emotion and then we do, right? It's mm. hot. And the other is much more responsive. So we're deliberate, we're more effortful, we're slower, we're more thoughtful. And short of being chased by a bear, you know, coming across a snake on a, a bike path, generally speaking, responding benefits us more than reacting, right? We very rarely regret responding to a situation. We often regret reacting rashly. And I've come up with this heuristic for responding that is really simple. It's four P's. So first we pause, we gather ourselves, we take a breath. We can almost use the hot emotions that we feel as a cue to say, oh, I'm feeling hot, this means I need to pause, I need to take a breath. Then we process what's happening. So instead of just going on autopilot, we really see reality for what it is. There's psychological research here called affect labeling that says simply by naming our experience, it helps us to process it. Then we make a plan. So we say, all right, like given what's happening, Here are the resources I'm equipped with. If I don't have the resources, here's where I need to go to get help. And only then do we proceed. So it's a much more effortful process, which means that it's harder. It takes more cognitive energy, but it's so much more beneficial than reacting, which I shorthand with the two Ps, which is we just panic and pummel ahead. And it's kind of like this cliche saying that I think is often really true, which is like sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. And I think in the face of change, that's 100% true. Hmm
0: yeah no I, I I really appreciate that. and that one final big piece here, which you talk about you know how to make meaning and move forward following big changes. so what wh- where where does that idea take us?
1: So I think that this was such an important part of the book that I really um, I wanted to include because i I hadn't seen this included in any other book in this genre, and, and it kind of bothered me, which is that for ninety eight percent Of the changes in our lives, you can do everything that we just talked about, which you know tracks to the book. Everything in the first six chapters of the book, and it will benefit you, and it will help you, and you'll come out the other side, and you'll find meaning and growth. Having a growth mindset, you know, things that aren't in my book, gratitude. These are generally really good things, but there are certain things that sometimes happen where telling somebody to just oh just respond, not react, or diversify your sense of self. It is the most out-of-touch thing to do. So a prime example is loss. You know, someone that loses a life partner, or God forbid, someone that loses a child. Telling that person, well, why don't you just write down th- three things that you're grateful for, is, is just so out of touch with reality. So I wanted to dive into this research, and I wanted to say, all right, I get it, you know? I, I stand behind everything in this book, and I think for 98% of circumstances, it's the path. But what about the true, gnarliest, capital T, traumas? hmm like what happens then? And what the work shows is that the more that we try to force meaning and growth on our experience, the more stuck we become. And that the most helpful thing that we can do in those times is to release from any need for meaning and any need for growth and just get through it. Just be kind to ourselves, show ourselves some grace, and get to the other side. And the paradox is once we get to the other side, we almost always tend to experience meaning and growth, Mm. but it has to come on its own time. So it's almost like navigating change. We have this big toolkit of all these tools. And I want to be clear in 98, maybe even 99% of situations, these tools help a lot. But there's this 1% of just the god awful, unimaginable changes that some people go through. And often this is just because the world can be a cruel and harsh place. Mm -hmm. And for those particular times in people's lives, it's about just releasing from the toolkit altogether and saying, hey, I need help. I need a therapist. I need a community to hold me. I just need to show up and get through this. I don't want to focus on anything other than surviving. And yet, if that person survives six months later, one year later, five years later, in some cases, maybe even a decade later, people tend to look back on those periods with an element of growth and meaning but it has to come on its own time. It cannot be forced.
0: Mm. I appreciate this so much because when I was training to become a psychotherapist, I did a lot of my hours at a hospice center doing a lot of grief counseling. And a lot of my clients there, a family member had died in like the most horrific circumstances you could imagine. And what I remember is that in those first months, they were hoping that in a sense, that they could find meaning and kind of move through grief or trauma, like really quickly. Like I'm going to come in and do six sessions because that's what I'm supposed to do. And then I'll be done. But I think what I learned and what they learned along the way is that like the psyche works at its own pace in a way that is not part of a medical model of like disease or illness, that these things are slow and mysterious, especially when it comes to really, really big potent emotions like grief or sadness. And that, You know, one of the things I always had to remind people of was like, it's okay, you're still here six months later. This is just part of where we are and what's going on. And that I think you're right. It's like after that, there can be meaning and the meaning is probably already happening quietly around them. But I think it's important for people to recognize that things take the time they're going to take and they cannot be forced in the way we think we can force other things by taking medication or just like, you know, zipping along. Does that, does that resonate
1: with what you're saying too? A hundred percent. You know, uh, a small injury to the body heals within a week or a month. A catastrophic injury that requires multiple surgeries can take years. Mm. And we're never the same after. And we accept this about our bodies, but with our psyches, we too often think that like we need to get on the fast track. Exactly. Um, But the bigger the change, especially if it's a negative one, the more time it takes to integrate. Although there's research that shows this is true for positive changes too, you know? Mm. Like after getting married or having a kid, people think like their life is just going to settle into stability really quickly, but that can take sometimes years to happen. And it's about having that expectancy and um, and just showing ourselves some grace and realizing that, yeah, it it takes time. And there's really interesting science here that shows why when we're in these periods, when we're in Dante's dark woods, it feels like it's all consuming and it takes forever. Mm. And that is because when we feel like our stability is... Vastly, intensely under threat, our perception of time slows down. So our brain goes from seeing the world around us like a continuous movie and it starts to see it frame by frame. And this makes sense if you think about it from an evolutionary biological perspective. When we're under threat, we need to pick up every little detail. You know, we need to see where that snake is moving across the path frame by frame. So When we're under threat, like our perception of time actually slows down. And it's the most clever experimental design ever. Mm. Neuroscientists had people do this insane amusement park ride where you're basically on a mattress and you just drop 150 feet, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, straight down. And the researchers, they had people guess how long it took for the drop in two conditions. Once when they were on the ground watching other people and once when they were riding it. And their predictions when they were riding it were over twice as long. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. And their predictions when they were on the ground were not only less, but they were accurate. So when you're in the thick of falling, and it's such a beautiful metaphor for change, time slows down. And what a fascinating, just like, I'm so, it's what a clever methodology and experimental design. But like, again, because it's nuance, right? When you're riding the thing, you know, maybe you say it takes one second. Whereas when you're watching someone else, you say it takes a third of a second. And it does take a third of the second, but when you're on it, it feels like one second. Um, So like when we're falling, we just have to be patient with ourselves because things feel a lot slower. Yeah.
0: Well, it's been so wonderful to be joined by Brad Stolberg, executive coach, writer, and author of The Practice of Groundedness, Performance. And we've been discussing his latest book, which is called Master of Change, how to excel when everything is changing, including you. Brad, it's it's always so wonderful having these conversations. Thanks for joining us on KCRW. We really appreciate the time.
1: Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is mine and the feelings are mutual.
0: That's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. We'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page. What tips and tricks do you have for navigating big moments of change? You can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Once again, this is Life Examined on KCRW. We appreciate you tuning in. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again next week. Take care.